Welcome to episode 98 of FRT, the IAF podcast on finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr of the IAF, and today we're talking across the world from Washington to Hong Kong. Our special guest is Professor Douglas Hanna. Doug is the Kerry Holdings Professor at the University of Hong Kong, a well-known global authority on all things digital finance, from the emerging technologies, payments, open banking, digital currencies, and the digital finance platform world, where so much of the interesting story has come from China in recent times. We'll talk on a few of those different themes, but it's the platformization one where we might dwell the most. And while Doug is Hong Kong based, he has a number of prominent board seats and global consulting roles across the US, Europe, Africa, and Australia, complementing his expertise on the very fascinating local environment as well. Doug, it's great to speak with you again. Welcome to FRT. Thanks a lot, Brad, and uh, great to be here. Can we start perhaps with, with how conditions are on the ground in Hong Kong at the moment? in terms of, of daily life and the economy and, and how the, the COVID situation is playing out there. I think for our listeners outside of Asia, I think we're all aware of, of the situation in Tokyo in the context of the Olympics. We've heard a bit about the Singapore renewed lockdown scenario in recent times. So interested in hearing how things are in Hong Kong, but also how you see perhaps the, the trajectory across the region. Yeah, thanks for that, Brad. So if we look at the situation in Hong Kong, Hong Kong has actually been in and out of being closed for most of the past two years. Um, 2019 with the protests, 2020 really in January, everything shut down here, likely largely along with the mainland. Uh, and we've been back and forth closed all across 2020. The good news uh, is certainly the, the pandemic is at the moment pretty much under control here. Things are largely reopened. Schools are open. Most people are back in their offices. The one thing that is not reopened so far is travel. Uh, and so Hong Kong has been more or less closed for most of the past year. And I think this is something that we're starting to see. And if we think about the dynamic uh, of East Asia, East Asia, many countries have done very well in controlling the health situation. But it's increasingly a challenge for countries to move from what is called an elimination strategy to a vaccination strategy. And you have to recognize that with a vaccination strategy, you are going to have some infections. And we're seeing this particularly Australia, New Zealand, mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, where they've done a very good job in controlling infections. But that makes it very difficult to, one, get your population vaccinated, and two, to reopen. And so I think what we're likely to see across 2021 is quite differential situations between Europe and North America, which are reopening from the middle of the year. Uh, and I think most of Asia is going to continue to be largely closed, at least from the travel standpoint, for most of the rest of the year. So that's a really interesting scenario to think of in terms of how we're going to see very uneven impacts in the long term from COVID. And I want to talk a little bit about you know, the extent to which COVID has ex uh, accelerated the, the process of digitalization. But I guess in terms of how some of these changes and, and uh, the way that consumer behavior has been altered, the way that some things will stick and others perhaps won't, is, is going to vary a lot with the experience that different regions, different economies have, have gone through. I really enjoyed in your video series, Looking Back, Looking Forward, you talked about uh, some of these trends of how finance more so than other sectors, perhaps, has really uh, seen this process of digitalization. And you've highlighted the impetus in payments, uh, also in the adoption of RegTech or SoopTech. I was wondering what's most stood out for you in terms of this COVID-driven acceleration? Yeah, I think the key thing has really been the speed. Uh, we have seen in many areas the sort of change that I might have expected to happen in three, five, ten years happening in a year. Uh, the sort of, if you think about discussions around central bank digital currencies, for instance, if you think about uh, building payment systems, the sort of G20 roadmap, if you think of just the growth of electronic payments. But from the supervisory standpoint and also large financial institutions, the level of comfort in using technology. You know, a year and a half ago, getting a bunch of regulators together for a closed door conversation online was not particularly easy. Uh, there was a real strong preference. One of my last trips before everything closed down was for an FSB meeting, people flying all over for the, the world for that meeting. Uh, and you know, over the past year, that hasn't been able to happen. 
And it's just a change in mindset. The other one, where I think it's been a huge driver, particularly in big financial institutions, has been in the cloud context. Any financial institution, a startup, a tech company started in the past five years, probably cloud native. But we all know that most of the big financial institutions running on core IT systems, often dating from 1970s mainframes. Uh, and there had been a real stickiness in moving away from that. And I think the necessities of working from home, dealing with customers from home, dealing with clients, dealing with regulators, dealing with everything off-site has just driven that forward much more rapidly than I think I ever could have imagined. I think even the, the nature of the cloud impetus really shifted really very dramatically very quickly a year ago. I think in, in maybe in March last year, in a lot of parts of the world, we were having the conversation about how cloud was enabling you to keep the lights on, that you were being able to shift people in other locations, facilitate what they needed to work from home and the like. But I think even by probably May or June, the conversation had for that had been, I think, surpassed by, you know, hey, this, this rapid level of digitalization and the way in which customer preferences, customers' expectations, the bar has risen, that for a banker and insurer to be able to keep pace with those expectations, that they needed to be able to deliver analytics, immediacy, things that they need cloud to do. And so it became more of a, a business risk or a strategic risk question of what do I need to do with cloud in order to have a viable business going forward for the next year, five years, 10 years. I felt like that, that dimension sort of surpassed the initial operational continuity impetus very quickly. Did, did it seem that way to you? Yeah, I, I think that's very much the case. And you know, it also had some, some regulatory impetus. Uh, I mean, we had pretty sizable enforcement action with, with City uh, in October last year. The regulatory approaches in that mandating centralized IT structures. Uh, and then, of course, efforts, uh, particularly in the EU with the new digital finance strategy, taking these things forward. And I think as countries around the world, one sort of are moving from thinking about how do you deal with this situation to building better systems going forward. It takes us into all of these discussions. And so, yeah, I think it's been a pretty amazing transformation at pretty much every level. You know, one of the challenges, though, of course, is that from the standpoint of the financial sector, things have been uh, often going rather well compared to a significant portion of the wider economy uh, in many places. And I think that that may be a challenge going forward. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. And I think also we will overlay some of what we've just talked about there with the wider trends that, that started pre-COVID around the, uh, the digital finance platforms in a moment. Um, one other thing, though, I wanted to pick up and, and that I really enjoyed from your Looking Back, Looking Forward series was when you talked about RegTech and SoopTech and you brought in the, the issue of BCBS 239, which I always chuckle at a little because it's probably, in my mind, the one and only bowl paper that is universally known by its number. But it, it was a, at the time that it came out, it was, it was a compliance challenge for a lot of banks, a very arduous challenge. I think some are probably still coming to grips with, with some of what was expected in it. But it's, it's been interesting that, that a couple of years on in that journey, I've increasingly heard some chief risk officers, also some chief data officers, talk about how BCBS 239 actually catalyzed more of the proactive use and management of data. And that, that when they had to overcome some of these old historic data silos that they had in their business for regulatory reporting purposes, maybe that catalyst of, hey, we have to spend the money because it's a compliance project, that actually enabled them to then work out the ways in which they could use data more constructively in commercial purposes also. And I'm just wondering whether that, that notion, that anecdote I'm, I'm sharing from a few chief risk officers, chief data officers, whether that resonates with what you've seen and heard. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I actually highlight it from sort of two different directions. One, uh, what we've seen from the, the sort of BCBS 239 side, but the other, uh, a sort of parallel process unintended in the EU that it has had very much the, the same result. And, you know, if you think back to 2007, 2008, one of the things that I think surprised regulators and many others is that it appeared that senior management of some very large financial institutions didn't have a good grasp uh, on their global risk profiles. Uh, certainly regulators didn't feel that they had a good grasp on the global risk profiles of uh, global financial institutions. And so we see this real focus, essentially that financial institutions need to be able to have pretty quickly 
an understanding of what their global risk situation is at almost a real-time basis. BCBS 239, the sort of risk data aggregation requirements, in some ways was you know, an idea before the capability to do it. Uh, when it first came out, uh, you'd read it and you would say, yeah, I think that's a great idea. But the actual sort of practical aspects of putting that together for uh, a globally systemically important bank was by no means straightforward. And I think what we've seen is one, that that served as a real impetus for banks thinking about these. And something that I've written about that I think is really interesting that has actually come up with the situation in India with COVID in recent months is how many large financial institutions built essentially large um, IT risk management compliance back office systems, often in India, uh, but sometimes in Malaysia or the Philippines or Poland or Utah uh, or other places with thousands of people collecting information from financial institution operations all over the world and repackaging it to deliver to multiple regulators every day all over the world. And of course, this really transforms the way that financial institutions have to think about collecting data. And then once you have it, you might as well use it for something else as opposed to simply repackaging it for regulators. But it is interesting because if we look at a, a series of enforcement actions involving the FCA over the past two years, two, three years, uh, essentially around MIFID, MIFID II, uh, and what you're often finding is that financial institutions still didn't have good systems for aggregation. One left last year that I already mentioned, uh, another one that is already proceeding this year, looking at similar sorts of things. Uh, and I think it's an interesting one that it's taken us almost 10 years to get to the point where financial institutions are now actively building systems to achieve this. And I mentioned the EU. I remember around 2016, 2017 in Asia, no one had ever heard of MIFID or MIFID II. And suddenly a realization that these things were extraterritorial and impacted everyone. And around the middle of 2017, something that we're now talking about constantly, GDPR. No one in financial services had really ever thought about data protection before around mid-2017, when suddenly there was this realization that GDPR was extraterritorial as well. And essentially what that does is the reporting requirements of MIFID, MIFID II, the other post-crisis reporting frameworks, forced financial institutions dealing with the EU to build up systems of data collection reporting. GDPR then forced them to build systems of data storage and management so that they were able to keep track of their customers and their customer requirements. Uh, and then, of course, PSD2 comes along uh, and requires them to share it with other people. But what that has done is in a very short period of time, if one thinks 2015, 2016, no one really would have thought uh, of EU banking industry is highly digitized. Uh, and I think this combination in a very short period of time has had a dramatic impact. And I think going forward, this is what we're seeing jurisdictions increasingly look at. How do these pieces fit together in both designing a system that is competitive digitally, but also gives you a system to effectively manage risks from a regulatory standpoint? Yeah, I think it's it's sort of, uh, I guess, a fairly uh, common strategic approach that you would be thinking of the outlays that you're making for compliance or regulatory reasons and where you're able to turn that into a, a positive and extract a return on investment from that. But it's, you've also got me thinking there in the way that you describe 239 as having been perhaps before the technology was ready for to, to be able to implement and achieve it. And I also sort of wonder how that sits a little bit with what we were, we've already talked about with cloud. Because certainly when we did our, uh, our first IIF machine learning survey of banks in 2017, looking at where they were using machine learning in, in, uh, for credit risk purposes, and we were interrogating them about the challenges that they were running into. And invariably, the biggest one was that they had all of their data sitting in these different silos, that their mortgage business was completely different from their credit card business, even though you had a lot of these customer overlaps. 
And we hear less about that challenge now as cloud journeys have got underway and there's been a greater ability to start bringing that sort of stuff in together into a singular data lake. But I do wonder whether that's, uh, I guess, a, a point of commonality and the, the more recent rush of cloud adoption um, ties in, I think, with that theme you mentioned of, of the regulation perhaps leading ahead of when the technology was ready for it. Yeah, and no, I think that's that's absolutely the case. And of course, the, the data protection requirements have required a certain level of standardization, uh, as well as the fact that an intent, increasing focus, both from a business standpoint, as well as a regulatory standpoint, and even a national security standpoint on cybersecurity questions. Uh, and of course, the other side of BCBS 239, where the technology definitely was not ready, was on the receiving end. The central banks and supervisors who found themselves inundated with vast amounts uh, of data that they've had to basically figure out how to deal with. And I think that from the standpoint of supervisors, this SupTech process of using technology for supervisory purposes, one of the biggest drivers has been that increasing amount of regulatory reporting and the fact that they have, as a result of increased reporting, created massive new data sets that didn't exist 10 years ago and have needed to think about the sorts of tools that they need to actually analyze those. And of course, today, the good news is that often when central banks in particular are thinking about new reporting requirements in, say, the data gaps initiative or something like that, they're looking at it actually from the standpoint of their models, where are they missing data that they need for broader analytics purposes, as opposed to maybe 10 years ago when it was just a sort of uh, scattergun approach of, you know, we want you to disclose everything. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about the, the, the Chinese digital finance platforms. We're big friends here on FRT of, of Professor Chris Brummer over at Fintech Beat, and we've done a few crossover episodes with him. And I noticed actually recently they replayed uh, or did an encore of uh, an episode you'd done with, with Chris. And in that discussion, you made the point that China's financial system had historically, probably like a lot of those around the world, not been very good at getting finance to small businesses. Uh, and that Jack Ma, I think as you framed it, had essentially convinced the government to let him run an experiment to address this problem and that it worked. It probably worked a bit too well, perhaps propelling the growth of, of Ant to the levels of systemic importance that we've seen. Perhaps for, for those of us outside of China, could you tell us a bit more about how that transpired and the impacts? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a brilliant summary. And it is, if we think about one of the big sort of grand challenges for economics and finance, it's SME finance. We know that SMEs drive a major portion uh, historically of growth and employment in economies everywhere, but they always run into financing constraints because individually each one is risky. Uh, and it's a question of how do you deal with it? And we've tried all sorts of different experiments over the years, secured transactions, uh, you can think of factoring, leasing, you can think about microfinance, uh, all sorts of things. And none of them have, have really worked that well. And I think China was facing this issue very much uh, a decade ago. If we think about China's development, core to China's development strategy is the use of piloting. Piloting is essentially allowing experiments to take place uh, often in a limited region with a limited population, you see how those go. And if it's successful, then you build a wider framework for rollout. If it's unsuccessful, then you close it down. One can think about um, special economic zones. Think moving from Hong Kong to Shenzhen and increasingly the entire country becomes just like those initial special economic zones. One can think about asset-backed securitization. Ten years ago, a series of different pilot transactions, which about four or five years ago, led to a broader framework. So digital finance, we see a couple of different paths. One is allowing the growth of lots and lots of online platforms, small platforms, basically P2P lenders. And that grows massively. On the other side, we see the emergence starting with mobile-based electronic payments providers. There's a sort of network effect where you get benefits and the traditional tech strategy 
is towards building an ecosystem, a walled garden. And if it's successful, uh, it can be a very successful business strategy. And we see this with Ant and Tencent in particular, building up very successful payments platforms, often in tandem with other businesses, e-commerce uh, with Ant, with Alibaba, uh, social media and gaming uh, with Tencent and the collection of massive amounts of data, building together hundreds of millions uh, of customers, and then using that as a base to begin rolling out financial services products. First, lending, but also investment. And in both cases, using the data from not just payments, but a wide range of different activities to look at both cash flows, as well as reputational factors, and to build automated systems uh, to support individual and SME lending. And we've seen those platforms in terms of scale and success develop incredibly and emerge certainly by 2018 uh, as amongst the largest providers of SME finance in China, and studies showing that this is very much not diverted from the banking system, it's new financing. It's, it's a phenomenal emergence that we've seen. Uh, I want to continue with the theme of SME finance for a moment. And, and as you mentioned, it's, it's a known problem. It's a known challenge in probably every economy in the world. And it comes down to a lot of the information asymmetries that we see in, in that sector. One major attribute in the growth that we've seen in China has been with the deployment of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning technology. And as you say, probably bringing together some of those financial factors and the reputational factors and the like. Found an interesting phenomenon in our IIF studies, looking at, at incumbent banks and insurers around the world and their use of the technology. And, and one, one of the things we found in our first study in, in 2017, 2018 was really that no one was touching the SME sector with, with these technologies. And across the, the banking environment globally, there was a lot happening in the retail sector, a lot on mortgages, a lot on credit cards. And there was a lot of stuff at the other end of the customer spectrum with the wholesale counterparties and the large corporates, particularly in those cases, you know, natural language processing, tracking for news services and the like, uh, supply chain information and so on. But there really wasn't much happening in the middle. It was this kind of bimodal distribution. But then we ran the same survey 18 months later, and we found that actually quite a lot was, was starting to happen in the SME sector. And, and whether that's that the banks ran the technology first in the cases where they had more homogenous data and then subsequently moved on to the SME sector perhaps. But it kind of gave me the sense that that there is there is a real opportunity in attacking this SME funding shortfall across the economy with these technologies, with the use of AI. And and it seems that that's happening from some of the new entrants and championed by people like, like Ant and Tencent, but it's also happening in a lot of the incumbent banks as well. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether it's it's less, in terms of this SME problem, this SME funding shortfall, it's, is it so much about who's doing it or is it more about, hey, you know, the, the technology is there and, and everybody is picking it up and everybody has the potential to, to pick it up and deploy it? Yeah, no, I think this is, this is really important. And, and you know, if we look at, say, AI, for instance, the leader has always been on the, the trading side and lending has come almost for everybody much later. And I think... Part of that has been that, that SME lending isn't necessarily that much of a profit center, though if you look at uh, an Amazon or an Ant, you can see how that can change uh, if you take a different approach. I think in many cases, the key, and this is a big question, the key is the data. And if you think about Ant or Tencent, it took them a period to build up that data pool themselves. Uh, and once they had uh, the sort of mass amount of data that then they were able to use for automated analytics, machine learning, and AI, that was really the key, that they had the access to the customers and they had the data on the customers. Now, if you think about your traditional bank, what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, um, that many banks hadn't properly digitized or structured the data that they had. And it's something that we've been saying for at least a decade, that banks have lots and lots of data. But until very recently, banks in most cases haven't necessarily been very good at using that data, often because the data hasn't been in an easily usable format. As you say, it's been uh, siloed, it's been 
uh, non-structured, uh, and that's made it all very difficult to use. And I think the competition of new entrants has forced uh, some rethinking, as well as some of those requirements, the BCBS 239, the GDPR issues, have forced digitization. And once you've digitized this information, it allows you to think about the analytics. If we look at the US, the big techs, Amazon is the one that has probably moved the furthest in this direction and has emerged as a major SME lender because it is a platform wherein a lot of SMEs just live on Amazon. That's their entire business environment. And so Amazon has a great deal uh, of information and can use that as a basis. And that's quite similar to Anton Alibaba. Uh, and it's done that by building up that platform of data. Others have to think about their own platforms and some of the bigger banks have large amounts of data that once they've structured it, they can use. But I think often the bigger question as we think about this is how can we get those big aggregations of data that can then be used by a wider range of players. So, you know, one model is the ant model where ant builds its own walled garden of all of this data in its ecosystem and then is able to use that data very effectively for many purposes. We can see that model trying to be adopted in other places, but at some stage you get these concerns about exclusion. And then how can you mandate the use of that data for others? And I think we're seeing a variety of approaches in the US, where SoFi, I think, has been heading in some of these directions for a while. Uh, in the EU, I mentioned the sort of PSD2 open banking and the decision to move that forward into more open data, open finance. Discussions in China about essentially treating data as a public good, a public resource. And I think what we're increasingly trying to figure out is how can we get those benefits for, say, SME lending of aggregation of data without a single player controlling all of the data? So you've set me up very nicely there for probably the, the range of questions I still had in mind for you. We're going to run through a few issues that are probably going to dig a little deeper into the points you've just mentioned. To take one of those, so, so I've talked in the past about, you know, there will be a future platform-dominated consumer finance system, and banks may lose the primary customer interface. Uh, they may be relegated to being a, a product provider on a tech firm's platform. They may still be providing the funding for the loan, perhaps, but it'll be a, a loan that is originated through the platform. And of course, if they're doing that, they're, they're still deploying balance sheet. They still have a business, but it's probably at, at thinner margins. And one thought, I guess, I found it really interesting in the Ant aborted IPO uh, in the disclosures that the funding for 98% of their consumer loans was being provided by their partner banks. I presume in the case of China, that would be the, the state-owned banks in the majority of cases. So I, I sort of wonder, is, is this the platform model that we talk about in the future in a lot, lot of the world that is already there, already up and running in China? And the risk of extrapolating a bit too far, you know, was it perhaps that Ant was just getting a bit too greedy in how much of the margin that it was taking, that it was taking it away from the state-owned banks, and that that may have been a factor in the, the government's response? Yeah, so I think that's a, a very uh, interesting point. And I think if we think about the government's response in China, we have to think of it from a number of different directions. One is really around stability and concerns about credit quality, about excess credit, uh, and about the potential of problems in uh, essentially credit systems. So one side is on the financial stability side. The other is on the financial development side. Uh, an increasing concern emerging from about a year, year and a half ago, that the platforms were becoming overly dominant and that this was squashing competition and innovation, and that that was having a long-term negative impact from the standpoint of the country's development. So I think if we're looking at China, we have to think of it from these two different angles, the financial stability side, but also the financial development side. But I think it's interesting, if we look at the evolution of Ant's business model, now, how they were initially doing this was a much more securitization-based structure. In other words, Ant would borrow money in the interbank bond markets in China, 
uh, it would then use that money to uh, make the initial loans. It would then repackage those loans as asset-backed securities and sell those into the markets. So that by 2018, uh, not only had China's securitization markets emerged as the second largest in the world after the United States, but Ant had emerged as the second largest issuer of asset-backed securities in China. And the Chinese regulators looked at this and said, you know, this has been working wonderfully, but when we look at this, this all seems a little bit familiar. We seem to have seen some of this before. Uh, and some aspects we saw this around 10 years before, around 2007, didn't play out so well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to throttle this particular experiment back. And so at that stage, Ant begins reducing that sort of funding mechanism and begins instead inviting banks to come in and basically fund the loans. So essentially, it becomes a giant platform where it is doing the credit evaluation and then is opening those loans up for funding. And of course, in China, you have very large lenders, your big five or so. Then you have a range of sort of city banks, and then you have a large range of smaller financial institutions, which over the past decade or so have become very involved in what we call wealth management products, which are quasi-securitization products, et cetera. They are often benefiting from deposits and investments from a certain local area, but having limited opportunities to deploy those. And so um, they had found that being able to deploy those funds via Ant's platform was a very effective model. The risk, however, was one where Chinese regulators essentially would look at this and say, all right, are we running into sort of moral hazard issues? In other words, Ant is just making these, it's not even making these loans. It's not keeping any of the credit risk. It's doing the evaluation. It's doing a platform. People are relying on its evaluation. And if something goes wrong, what happens? Well, we have thousands of banks around the country failing. Uh, and so, I think as we think about this platform business model, we're gonna to have to think really carefully about the interlinkages. And often when we think about financial crises, uh, the linkage between something, wherever the asset price bubble may be and the eventual crisis is the lending nexus. And how does that lending nexus get from the banking system to whatever asset is inflated? Uh, and that's something that we will need to be looking very, very carefully at. Definitely. And I think you, you allude there to perhaps some, some new approaches in regulation and supervision that will be needed to keep pace with that new emerging business model. But I think if we can continue with the theme of, of I guess, the impact on market structure and uh, systemic importance, systemic risk and concentration. You spoke in the, the IF China Platforms Roundtable we had in April, and you made the point then that financial services benefits from economies of scale but also that network effects that are so very much at the heart of a lot of these technology platforms, that network effects benefit from both economies of scale and also economies of scope. And you alluded from that to the growing risk of a new concentration, the potential winner-take-all environment. Um, I've heard Hugh Van Steenis at UBS call it the winner-take-most environment that's been propelled out of the pandemic. And that we have this, this scenario that, that a small group of companies may potentially end up controlling the majority of the ecosystem. I think in, in here and in, in the comments you've made, you've already shared with us a bit as to how this is, is played out in China. But what do you think are the key learnings for the rest of the world in this? Yeah, I think the key learning is that China concluded, as I think the US is increasingly concluding, that that theoretical issue, um, which Adam Smith said would happen, that you would get a small group of players which would emerge in dominating the economy uh, and that their economic interests would then result in constraining of competition, that China concluded that that happened and that that was something that they needed to address. Uh, and that's something that I think there's an increasing maybe consensus around the world that sort of market concentration, winner take all, winner take most, 
oligopoly sort of outcomes uh, are not purely theoretical. Uh, and that particularly from the standpoint not only of risk, but also from the standpoint uh, of concentration of wealth and economic power, uh, and from the standpoint of wider development, that we need to think very carefully in societies around the world about the approaches that we're going to take to the data that underlie these sorts of business models. Because as we've been talking about, data aggregation has very important potential benefits across not only finance, trade, health, just about everything, but it also brings with it some real risks. And I think going forward, these are going to be amongst some of our bigger discussions and it may emerge, it already is emerging as a challenge, particularly for cross-border finance as major economies take different approaches to data and we end up with definitely a trend probably more towards fragmentation uh, in data approaches as opposed to globalization and harmonization of data approaches. That's a whole other subject I'd love to talk about at length with you another time. Um, and it's one that, that the IF we've been picking up the theme that Ravi Menon had spoken about of you know, whether we perhaps need a, a digital Bretton Woods or uh, as I think things have been very well progressed in the APEC Financial Forum, being cognizant that there's never going to be a singular set of, of data rules around the world, but we need to achieve a degree of interoperability between those, the, the minimum standards that we need to, to uh, ensure that, that continuity and consistency. But I, I will park that one and, and continue on, on the platform theme a little bit further with you. And this might be me trying to boil this down too simplistically, but, but taking a bit of what you've said here, which I think really resonates and is, is a great uh, overview of some of these concentration and, uh, and market power issues. We've also seen the statements from uh, Augustine Carstens at the BIS in January, uh, followed up by Fernando Restoy at the FSI with his report in February that was looking at, at whether or not we need to extend the, the umbrella of regulation, of financial regulation across some of the tech firms increasingly uh, that are dominating in the space. And they, I think, had veered away from wanting to take an activities-based approach, but rather to be thinking in a, an entities-based approach to the new entities. So I kind of feel like we're, we're trying to, me simplistically, that we're, we're looking at two really big groups or sets of policy issues that do intertwine. But one is, is how do you regulate these new types of businesses? And that's some of the dilemmas that you've described that the Chinese firms were always facing with, with Ant in its earlier days. How, how do you regulate new businesses? And then, and you have with that the added complexity that there's such a, a complex labyrinth of regulatory mandates and that the traditional mandates of the banking regulator and the securities regulator and how that intersects with the privacy commissioner and so on. But then secondly, you have the competition issues and the, the risk of the new market concentrations that are emerging. And I feel like those are the, the, the two sort of really big sets of, of policy issues. And if I can put one more alongside that, less on the policy side, but more on the strategic side for the banks and the insurers, you know, how do you find your place in this world? You're in this, this world of embedded finance, or, or Chris Skinner doesn't like that term, he calls it invisible finance or the platformization. How do you as a, a firm, financial firm, find your place in it? You know, can I get your thoughts here? You know, am I being too simplistic or is this a fair representation that we've got these sort of big regulatory questions and this strategic question alongside it? Yeah, I think that's, that's very much the case. And it's interesting, particularly from the strategic side, that at different levels, it's increasingly difficult to tell a tech firm from a bank from uh, a fintech. And over the past 10 years, there have been lots of discussions about, you know, will the fintech startups come in and disrupt uh, finance? Uh, more recently, it's about the sort of big techs dominating. And the reality is we're seeing different firms coming from different backgrounds, and basically they're competing along similar lines. And I think the strategy is very important to think about what is it you are going to try to do? Are you going to be a sort of platform? Are you going to be a, a sort of service? Uh, are you going to be a sort of data bank? Uh, we've had lots of discussions about banks essentially moving from a bank for money to being banks for data. Are you going to focus on some niche, some aspect of specific technology? And I think the key here is that 
from the standpoint of financial services, the industry is a lot more complex now because you have a lot of different options that 10 years ago, from the standpoint of where you're going to go, what you're going to do, and who you're competing against, really weren't there. And so I don't think there's any single strategy, but I think it's very important for institutions to think about what is going to be their strategy from the standpoint of finance, data, technology, they're pretty indistinguishable. And so what is it and how is it that you are going to do these things? And from my standpoint, from the policy side, I think increasingly, and this is one of the Chinese lessons, that we need to treat uh, similar risks, similar activities that bring uh, similar sorts of concerns similarly, regardless of where you're coming from. Let's take that that point you made there about the you know banks finding their their place and their strategies and whether they seek to be a platform business or whether they become more of a product provider on somebody else's platform. Um, last year we spoke with Kanjido Brasher at the time the the CEO of Itau in Brazil, and he talked about how their bank had had embarked on the approach that they wanted to be the platform that they had chosen to focus on on distribution and the customer relationship more so than on product. Uh, and that meant that, among other things, they had to invite other firms, uh, startups, insurers to sell their product on Itao's platform to Itao's customers. And one point he made was that it had really required Itao to be able to develop or acquire new skills in how they manage third-party relationships, far more so than, than anything of what they'd had to do in the past. So I, I guess with that experience you know, re- um, ringing in my ears, I'm interested as, as firms are finding their place and how they face into this platformized world. Are there firms in Asia that you see that are doing this particularly well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, that's been uh, another dynamic is we're seeing um, new entrants from uh, a range of different countries and different markets that are, are taking different approaches. And, you know, one can think about interesting examples from the Finn side. Uh, if you think about in the U.S., you think about Citadel. That's a very different sort of directionality uh, that has emerged as a massive underlying platform. That's one. Now, if we look at the Asian context, obviously the Chinese big techs, Ant and Tencent, and as they restructure, they are continuing to focus out, and I think they're going to continue to do very well. They essentially take a tech approach to finance. That means focus on automation. It means going in light people. But certainly coverage has suggested that they've been pretty massively expanding their legal, regulatory, and government affairs teams so that the difference between them and uh, other large financial institutions will be relatively less. Ping On in China is the other giant data source, data platform. And Ping On is moving uh, not just vertically, but horizontally moving from insurance into healthcare, into real estate, into auto repairs. Why? Because if you run the hospitals, you have great data from the standpoint uh, of the people that you're selling insurance to. Or if you have an auto site and you track the use of those cars, you're in a better position to sell insurance. And all of this builds data pools that not only you can use for your own purposes, but you can sell to others. Uh, And that, of course, is actually a big interest from the standpoint of the Chinese regulators, is the selling of data by the large platforms. Moving out, I think DBS uh, in Singapore is a firm that has done very well in actually moving from, there's little difference between DBS uh, and many of, of the tech firms. Some of the evolving platforms, the sort of Grab Gojek in Southeast Asia, Uh, If we look at India, what I think is particularly interesting in India is the role of the big techs in payments, Google Pay, Paytm, WhatsApp Pay, uh, and the role that these may have going out. So I think we're seeing some really interesting models uh, and bringing together different aspects of finance, data, and technology, and most of them not looking just at their own market, but trying to figure out how they can move beyond. In, uh, in 2019, uh, the IEF, we kicked off a piece of work with Deloitte on digital transformation. And we asked a, a lot of people who did they most admire in how they'd uh, engaged into this world. And, and overwhelmingly, a lot of people were telling us DBS. 
And I was fortunate enough to have uh, their CEO, Piyush Gupta, on a panel at our 2019 annual membership meeting. And I, I asked him the same question, who do you most admire in this space? And not surprisingly to your ears, I'm sure, he said Ping An. So uh, a lot of commonality in, in what you've described there. Doug, I've got one last question for you, and I want to change gears again a little bit here. Um, you have touched on open banking and PSD2 and the like through the course of the discussion. But if we could perhaps just zero in on that for a moment. And, and we've both written chapters for Linda Jeng's upcoming book, Open Banking. Uh, Linda, of course, at Georgetown University, previously at the Fed, and she chaired the Bowl Committee's uh, task force on open banking uh, during her time at the Fed. In the piece I wrote for the book, I focused on some of the competition issues, similar to a bit of what we've discussed here. I also made the linkage to, to digital identity. Um, we're going to talk with Linda again on FRT at about the time that the book is published, but I was wondering if you could give us a sneak preview of, of what we can expect in your chapter. Yeah. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about today has been the, the digital identity issue. And I think that is uh, one of the most important things that has come out of COVID uh, is a focus on just how valuable and transformative that can be. Uh, and if one thinks about in particular infrastructure from the standpoint of, of individual digital identities, but also as we think about how can we build systems uh, around corporate digital identity. And this is something that the recent G7 agreement on tax combined with some of the beneficial ownership agreements combined with some of the common reporting standards on tax plus ongoing work on legal entity identifiers. I think we're getting close to something that can give us a real foundation for corporate digital identity, which will be a real solution to one of our fundamental challenges around market integrity and highly expensive, inefficient systems uh, that have been built up to try to deal with AML and the like. You know, from the standpoint of, of the chapter that I've written uh, with Dirk Zetcha and Ross Buckley, we really kind of picked up on some of the issues that we talked about today. This idea of how uh, MIFID II, GDPR, PSD2 in the EU has basically laid the groundwork. If you just said open banking in the EU without the digitization beforehand, it wouldn't work. And so it's been the fact that they've had these parallel initiatives, which really were never designed as a common strategy, but because they had the three different plus the fourth, the digital ID piece, the four pieces together has set them up to make open banking potentially workable. And I think it's going to be something that is going to be watched very, very closely because we're having lots and lots of discussions, but so far, limited cases where we're actually seeing it happen. The UK, Australia are probably the best examples where things are happening. And I think what we're going to see in the EU is it may be easier in the environment of a country or a region where you can build the tech infrastructure that makes the data sharing more effective. I think in developing countries and emerging markets, that's going to be uh, a bigger challenge. It also ties back a bit to, to what you were describing earlier about the, the concentration of data and whether there is a single party or the basis upon which data can be shared through the ecosystem. And, and one of the things that, that I'd like to see is that we move beyond talking about open banking and more to talking about open data and that it's not carrying some of the, the legacy of being sector specific in the way that uh, it may have originally been founded. So Doug, thanks very much. Uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground and, and I'm going to I don't know if I can do this justice, but I'm going to try and summarize some of the key themes that you've covered because you've given us a real great crash course across tech platforms and so much more. I think firstly, we, when we talked about some of the legacy of COVID and what we've seen from the rapid digitalization through the pandemic, uh, and you emphasized particularly the speed that it's occurred, but also the importance of cloud and how that's really, uh, I think, emerged and become more critical than ever and such a critical enabler for so much of what banks, insurers and others are needing to do to, to keep pace with their customers. And I think that's a really good linkage to the discussion we had about BCBS 239 and, uh, and where that had helped to catalyse more uh, proactive use of uh, and management of data. And I think you, you articulated there a lot about you know, the, the work that firms have been doing in, in building up compliance systems, but also how that's then become in itself a critical enabler, a critical underpinner for some of the work that they've been and found themselves needing to do subsequently. I think as we talk through some of the Chinese experience, and, and I think it's, it's fascinating to hear what you're able to describe through the journey of, of Ant Financial and of Tencent, 
and of uh, the discussion we had about the SME sector. But I think really the point you made about the, the, the key being the data. And when we talked about the ability of things like artificial intelligence to help overcome some of the, the data shortfall in the SME space, the point you made that, that it took Ant and Tencent 10 years to be able to build up that data, that banks, as you put it, have always had that data, but they have until recently not been very good at how they use it, that it wasn't in a usable format, the siloing we talked about. So I think the, the again, the catalyzing of, of BCBS 239, the pandemic cloud, has probably added further impetus to, for banks to, be, to put themselves in a footing where they're able to use the data in the same way that Ant after 10 years can. And it poses the question that you, you raised of, you know, how can we get this data in a way that it can be effectively used potentially by, by many players and not be uh, held in a walled garden as a um, proprietary asset only of one particular firm, perhaps. The Chinese government uh, response with, uh, with Ant, and you talked there about uh, both financial stability and financial development, and as the platforms became more, uh, more dominant. And I think uh, I really like the point you made then of, of this increasing recognition around the world that the, the winner-take-all or winner-take-most scenario is, is not theoretical. And indeed, it's, it's one I feel that, that we were calling this out a little bit in IIF papers two or three years ago, and it, and it probably did feel a bit theoretical at that time. But it suddenly seems a reality now. And as you say, we need to think about that very carefully from a lot of standpoints, from what's optimal for the consumer, from in terms of financial stability, but also in terms of some of the wider societal impacts um, and, and things like income inequality and asset inequality. And I think uh, lastly... Um, Open banking, I think it's it's one that we're going to look at a lot further in, in the years to come. You touched on digital identity as we referred to that. And at the IEF, we've worked very heavily with the Open ID Foundation on the Open Digital Trust Initiative, and it's one that I, I hope we can see uh, further activity catalyzed there. When you referred to corporate digital identity, it reminded me that the BIS Innovation Hub uh, in Hong Kong, led by Benedict Nolans, is making a big focus on this at the, the moment as well, which we, we definitely welcome. So, Doug, thank you. It's been great to, to speak with you again. Thanks for sharing so much of your, your insights with us here on FRT. Thanks a lot, Brad. Great to talk to you all. And uh, hopefully, we'll get to see you somewhere this year. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Looking ahead on FRT, we're nearing in on our 100th episode. And I want to highlight a few of the other great guests that we have coming up that will help us mark that occasion. Uh, shortly, we're going to talk about the FSB consultation on cross-border payments with Eva Hupkes and Alexandra Steveno. We're going to talk with our chairman, our chairman at the IF, but also UBS's chairman, Axel Weber. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of the financial services industry in an increasingly digitalized and connected world. We're also going to go right back to where we started. Daniel Moore, the chief risk officer at Scotiabank, was our first guest. We're going to speak with him again. And, and at that time, he talked about where he wanted to use data as a, an enabler to transform the culture of the risk management function away from decisions based on traditional orthodoxies and more to being a data-driven culture. We're going to pick up with him and see how that journey has transpired over the last couple of years. And we're also going to look at our new inclusion series with Visa and with CIV Egypt. So please stay safe. Join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.